Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I guess uh, it's not bad weather in New York, but I guess we have to hear how good the weather is in San Diego. <laughs> we were just telling Diane that we think that the weather here has finally turned and uh, it's we've got bluebird days. So even when it's 65 or so, it feels very nice. Good. Let's start from the back again. I want to leave a lot of time for talking about AI and the impact on all kinds of companies. But let's do oil first. Oil is Exhibit C. For those of you who don't have the Exhibit C in hand, it looks as though the market for this year is oversupplied oversupplied because the total liquids are just under 102 million barrels a day and the total demand is just under 100. So it looks like there's about a million barrels a day of imbalance between the supply and the demand. Lots of publicity about China and giving up COVID shutdown. And in fact, the forecast for 23 has Chinese production or Chinese demand up by 700,000 barrels. I'm citing down the rest of this chart and the total increase is around a million four hundred thousand barrels of demand and half of it is China. For a frame of reference of the 101 million barrels a day of demand in 23, about 20 million barrels or 21 million barrels a day is from the U.S. So we're about 20% of all the demand. The second largest is China at just under 16 million barrels a day. Europe is 14 million barrels a day, and they're flat. Other Asia away from China is around just under 13 million barrels a day. Now, is, is, is it a demand problem? I don't think so. Oil demand typically goes up by about one and a half percent a year, you know, if there's not something else happening. And so we're getting the increase in 23 and we're predicted to get the increase in 24. Why is demand high? The U.S. is up about 500,000 barrels a day to 12.4. U.S. is the largest producer of oil. Russia which was just under 11 million barrels a day last year, was expected to be down because of sanctions. And it is down 600,000 barrels, but you know, not as much down as people were forecasting. So it's just kind of a persistent imbalance between supply and demand. Surplus capacity, which is almost the two, say just under 3 million barrels a day of surplus capacity, in other words, capacity it isn't being produced, way more than half of that is Saudi Arabia, and the other bit of it is Abu Dhabi. OPEC plus, which is Russia plus OPEC, committed to cut 
by a million and a half barrels a day, I think starting June 1, I think all they were doing was recognizing the fact that supply is more in demand. So I don't think it means uh, it. Obviously, the price of oil went up $5, but I don't think that really means too much. I think we're in an oversupplied market and the cut, the cut will help. If you turn to the second from last page, Exhibit B, you can see that the price of oil peak at the, at the middle of last year was $108 for the prompt month, but with a lot of backwardation. In other words, it's $108 in the prompt month in the end of June last year. By the time you got out three years, it was $80. If you follow that to halfway through January of this year, the prompt month was 74, a huge decline, more than $20 but the 24 price was 71. So if we went from a backwardation to kind of a flat, and if you do last Friday, the prompt month was 76, and uh, 24 was like 72. So over the weekend, OPEC Plus announced, so everything kind of moved up by four or $5, but you know, it, it, it's behaving like an oversupplied market. Exhibit B also has gas. These are new numbers from last year, from last week. And what has happened is gas production continues to incline. The old numbers in the schedule until the changes were made over the weekend had 23 production at 97.5 bees a day, up from 95.5 and 22. Based on Platt's numbers, move that up to 100 and a half because you can't predict 97 and a half when current production is 100. So what that has created, because the demand didn't change, is an oversupply of three bees a day. That's the most oversupply I can remember. And in fact, the spot price is plummeted. The spot price, if we go back to the middle of June last year, was $6. Now the the spot price is like $2. The 24 price in the middle of June last year was 450. Now the 24 price is 367. Why has the 24 price declined way less than the prompt price? That's because of LNG exports, which are 13 and a half out of total demand of 102. But there is under construction, totally financed, at least 10 bees a day of LNG capacity. The only question is how quickly is it going to come on? This forecast has it going up by a bee a day on an average in 24 and a bee and a half a day in 25. That results in a kind of break-even supply demand in 25, which would account for that higher price. Last Friday it was 367 and 24 and 430 and 25. If we go quickly to the gas stocks, page 12, the gas stocks have gone down way less than, than the commodity, and that will continue to be the case. These three companies are all pretty good companies. We're partial to Antero because we helped start it, and we own a lot of stock. Antero was as high as almost 50. Now they're in the low 20s. Times last year's cash flow is trading at only three and a half times last year's cash flow, but of course, they're not hedged and their cash will be considerably less, like maybe half. So it's not really trading at three and a half times free cash flow. It's trading at seven or eight times free cash flow. 
and did a very QT in Chesapeake. If you turn the page to page 11 and you look at oil companies, they're primarily oil companies, they're all trading about eight or nine times free cash flow, and oil, as we've seen, is behaving better. So now, is there potential for these things to trade a lot higher as you move into 24 and 25? Yes, but you know, don't don't expect it to happen next week or next month. Um, and with that, just have one additional comment on the political scene, and this goes to uh, Exhibit A, and that is that the the we have the debt ceiling coming up, and the debt ceiling is eminently resolvable. However, if you look at Exhibit A. The, and you take out for this year all the spending for that's kind of automatic Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, federal pensions, interest, defense. It comes down, the, the amount of revenue starts out at about $5 trillion. We take out all those things and, and we spend more than $6 billion. So we're, we're, our deficit is a trillion four. The amount that we spend as compared to those those items, uh, in other words, the, the stuff that you have some control over is a trillion four. Pre-COVID, that number was 900 billion. That $500 billion increase needs to be scaled back. Doesn't matter whether Democrat does or Republican does it. The Republican House caucus is taking a position that, that, that there ought to be some reduction there, 100 billion, 200 billion. The president, and the, his advisors are saying, no, we want a clean debt ceiling increase. I don't know how this gets resolved. It would be much better for the Republicans if they could put down a, on a piece of paper how they plan to cut, you know, 100 or 200 billion out of that trillion four. They don't want to do that because every government program is popular and they probably even have trouble agreeing amongst themselves. So it, it, it doesn't. It's eminently resolvable, but I don't I don't know whether it will get resolved. And that certainly is something to keep an eye on as we as we <clears throat> get through April into May and June. When uh, what has happened in the past is the Treasury announces that they can no longer juggle the books, that they will have to start laying off people or having people come to work in Washington and not get paid. I don't know when that will happen, but it looks to me like it's easily avoidable, but whether it gets avoided is another question. And with that, we just want to stop and see if Mike or Jason have anything to add on, on any of these issues that I may have misstated or omitted. No, I think it was well said. And I, I, I think I mentioned this to you this morning. I think this oil and gas price analysis is really good to do because it diverges a little bit from some of the major banks forecast. And I think when you put it in context with the OPEC cuts, it all sort of makes sense and kind of lines up to this seems to be a, a pretty good assessment as to where things actually are. Okay. Now I have a fun thing to do that is unrehearsed. So I'll put Mike and Jason on their best behavior. I'm looking at the index here for the 20-page memo, and obviously there's 20 pages, and there's an average of three companies per page, 
three or four, maybe three and a half. Let's go through this index just for fun. And uh, this will be like a uh, one of those spot interviews or, or where the, the congressional committees, the Senate committees try to get witnesses to say yes or no. Let's let's see how many of these companies we can get through in terms of is AI going to help them or hurt them? And of course, the first three are Apple, Alphabet, and Tesla. You know, we want commentary from Mike and Jason. I would say all three of those are probably going to be helped. But with that, Jason, why don't you start off and see if you see any disadvantage to those three as compared to advantages from AI becoming um, more available and, and, and more used in all kinds of communications. No, I, I agree. All three, all three will be helped out. Apple in particular is going to, I expect them to have maybe not the next generation, but the one after their iPhone is going to have mobile chips specific for these kind of AI models and algorithms that we're developing right now. So I think, I think of the three, maybe they're in the best position. Tesla obviously needs AI to, to drive their cars, though. All right. And yeah, Mike's a car guy. What do you think about Tesla, Mike? Oh, I think they're well positioned. Um, I, some of the data that we're seeing out of some of the traditional automakers and their plans for EVs show losses that are pretty staggering. And when everybody was making fun of Tesla for launching the Model 3 and how they were losing money on every car in the beginning and how it wasn't going to be feasible, um, well, that, that bet seemed to have paid off pretty well. And unfortunately for the traditional makers, they're now competing against a well-functioning company that's well-capitalized and has infrastructure already set up. So it's going to be a lot harder for the traditional automakers, Ford, Volkswagen, et cetera, to compete with, with Tesla head-to-head on EVs. I'll give a counterpoint. Well, I believe in uh, Tesla EVs on the on the electric side. Um, Mercedes was the first company to get approval for a level four autonomous vehicle in the U.S. So maybe they're a little further ahead, even though Elon says you know they're light years ahead of everyone else. Yeah, I think they're definitely further ahead on the regulatory, uh, keeping the regulators happy side of things. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. The next line is Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, and Oracle. We've talked at length about how Microsoft has benefited from uh, making their investment in open AI. I talked to uh, Mike this morning, Jason, but I mean, Mike took the view that Microsoft hadn't done that. They'd be kind of naked. They'd be behind. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. They They lucked out with making that big investment, or maybe not lucked out. Maybe that was their... That was their strategy to catch up. Right. Right. And the largest uh, software company or largest SaaS company is Salesforce. Do you think AI programs are, can be helpful to Salesforce or, or will it make their, their, will they make them more of a commodity or how, how do you envision that happening? I think both. It's going to certainly make their product better, but, um, Potentially, some tools will come on and, and disrupt the whole workflow of automating, automating and managed sales teams. You know, potentially automate it all away. So, can can they be the first ones to do it? I think that's a really good point because this AI tool is kind of transformative in the way that 
it's applied. So all the traditional software constructs that we have, and Salesforce is a good example of being the first to cloud, maybe the the ultimate solution for the modern CRM in the next generation could be completely different. And applying these large language models to Salesforce's data will definitely render positive results, but everybody else is going to be doing that too. So I think the, the disruptive player will probably be a very different approach mm-hmm. if and when that happens. What about the prettiest girl in the room, Snowflake, or at least over the last couple of years? How do you think they're impacted? We've talked about this one a bit um, and gone back and forth, but ultimately the, the power of Snowflake is you can take a huge collection of your corporate data and then access it through standard business intelligence tools. So I potentially see them as just they change the, the front end layer. Instead of BI tools, now you... Now you're asking questions through a, a chat application or some other you know, new AI algorithm, but the data itself needs to be housed somewhere and it, and it needs to be available for training these algorithms. So I think Snowflake's you know, still in an okay position there. I don't, I, don't think it, I don't think it helps or hurts them. Yeah, it's, it's probably important to point out that these large language models are good at making predictions about data. In, in other words, like when it puts together a sentence, it's predicting what word to go next. It's not necessarily great about being deterministic. So you still are going to need databases and the ability to access data that is accurate. And that data will be held in Snowflake. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Oracle, Jason's been a closet bull on Oracle because of the Cerner acquisition. I assume this a lot of these AI tools are going to wind up being used in healthcare, but how does it look to you, Jason? I think they benefit more by NVIDIA than, than anything else. They've managed to become the, the cloud provider for, the primary cloud provider, at least, for NVIDIA's AI cloud, essentially, the DGX cloud. So if, in a sense, NVIDIA is competing against Amazon and Azure by standing up the, the, their infrastructure on top of Oracle's cloud. I just can't help but divert. It's not on our list. ByteDance isn't on our list, but how does Oracle benefit from whatever happens to TikTok? I ultimately think it gets banned, and and I think that's a bad thing for Oracle, right? They they lose out on on that. It's, it has to be a tremendous percentage of of their cloud infrastructure is, is running TikTok, so they're going to lose that business. Uh, the best case scenario for TikTok is probably to be bought by Walmart. I think Walmart is sort of underrated from a technology perspective. They have arguably more customers than anybody other than Amazon, probably. And adding a technology platform like TikTok could be incredibly powerful for their business. It's sort of a hypothetical scenario, but if it were forced into a sale, I would be shocked if Walmart wasn't one of the primary bidders. And then Walmart ha- will, will do their own server farms and whatnot rather than use Oracle or, or Google. or. I, I can't really speculate on that. I, I, yeah. I, they, they just as, might as well leave it at, at Oracle as far as I can tell. Right. The next slide's really interesting because it's NVIDIA, which seems to be a hugely benefited, at least 
stock market investors think they've hugely benefited, and presumably TSMC also benefited more more equipment to uh, run these large language models. Any commentary on AMD or Intel or or Intel still still in the way, way rearview mirror? Do you want to, you want to bash Intel I, this time, or do you want me to? <laughs> <laughs> Who's turning? <it? laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. But they, uh, you know, they have all these grand plans, and and my attitude is I'll 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 believe it when I see it. So they they haven't. I don't. Not to my knowledge, they they haven't you know shown anything revolutionary. Yeah, I, I think that from a from a corporate strategy perspective, they're a little bit behind the ball. You need to be very embedded in your customer to build custom solutions. And that's just never really been Intel's business model. Their business model from the beginning was we're going to build a chip that can do everything. And right. for better or worse, we've, we've passed that part in the story of computing. Next line is Netflix, Disney, and Amazon. I don't know. I this one's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I, I knew I could get through three lines. I have no clue about, well, Amazon obviously has their own, but what do you think about Netflix and Disney and AI? Well, one of the interesting things about Netflix is that they were one of the really early pioneers for AI in making recommendation algorithms. But I think this category in particular is very interesting. And Jason and I were just talking about this over lunch. What does original content what are those content libraries whether it's music or it's a blogger's website or what whatever it was from this last kind of 20 year period is it more valuable because of large language models or is it less valuable and i think you can make the argument either way so i don't know that i would say that large language models in particular are a benefit or a curse to either of them you might see cost of content production continue to go down, but that's a trend that's been sort of at play for a long time anyways. So, Yeah, the thing I would add is is growing up, they had these choose-your-own-adventure books. So, you know, you'd read a chapter, and at the end of the, at the, end of the chapter, it'd tell you to, to make a decision and turn to the specific page. Yeah. I love those books. <laughs> right? And, and Netflix had made a show using a similar concept. So I think, I think, you know, someday in the future we'll see um, TV series or at least a movie have the content generated based on your your interaction with that, you know, that visual product. Huh. Interesting. And Disney, you know, kind of the content king, presumably, no matter what happens with AI, they'll still be the content king. Or what do you think? Yes, I think so. Again, this is something we've been talking about the last few days because both myself and Kellen have used ChatGPT to come up with songs or stories for the girls, you know, two-year-old. They're not super discerning when it comes to content. So I, I, I asked ChatGPT to write a song, and Josie loved it. Uh, Kellen asked ChatGPT to write a book based on another book that we like. But instead of basically using the characters as our dogs instead. And, of course, our daughter really loved it. And now we're like, well, we should put this into a real book and print it out for her. So, you know, there, there is something to 
that maybe this is why I don't have a clear view on whether the old content is worth more or it's actually worth less because that old content is kind of essential for creating new content. But if there's no way to monetize it, then is it valuable? Mm -hmm. And as, as powerful as content created specifically for you is, humans love shared experiences. So when we all watch the same show and can discuss it the next day, I don't think that goes away either. Right. It's a little bit of a question mark on content, I think. Amazon, you know, being able to give commands and stuff was, you know, in reasonably good position, but probably both Amazon and Apple, I guess, rather than be subject open AI, marking stuff up or having Microsoft make money from them, they they have their own versions of open AI and and I guess I guess that that makes sense given that given the fact that they've already had a fair amount of effort going on on AI. Yeah, and his, historically, if you look at other software technologies, Amazon is really good at either taking an open source thing and productizing it, uh, blatantly ripping off someone else's idea and, and doing it better as the, the fast follower or buying the company. So. You know, I, I think I don't think they'll be left out. Right. The last two I think we'll have time for are Charter and Comcast, both of whom are kind of under investor suspicion because of fixed wireless impact on them. But before getting into that, any commentary on AI impact on on Charter and Comcast and delivering all that material to us all. For example, uh, Comcast and Charter have an enormous investment in enabling you to uh, watch three movies at a time and, and, and stuff. But how, how, do they, how do they fare with AI, do you think? If, if you include AI as the automated generation of maybe virtual worlds, then you're talking an order of magnitude more content being delivered over their networks. So if, if three people in your household are wearing VR goggles or, you know, even if they're in the same, same world, if you will, but in different parts of it, just, just the amount of bandwidth that they'll have to supply to houses will, will be drastically higher. Um, and, and how do they get there, right? That's, that's a huge expense to, to upgrade their networks. Right. Right. I guess we have a few more minutes as long as we've done Charter and Comcast to do the other networks, AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile, it looks, when you when you look at page six, let's just turn to page six, kind of looks like T-Mobile is outperforming AT&T and Verizon, but from a capital point of view, AT&T and Verizon have been dividend stocks forever, and T-Mobile doesn't pay a dividend. So, I mean, at least to me, looking at the numbers, it looks like from a capital markets point of view, as well as from an operating point of view, T-Mobile's make, making, uh, well, the selling term would be making trees, making trees on the other two. But how does it, how does it look to you, Mike and Jason? It looks kind of like bloody competition. <laughs> I, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, te- the telecom markets, telecom can be a very good investment, as, and actually statistically in a, in a recession, it tends to be quite resilient. 
But, it, you know, you have three companies all vying for the same customer and a fourth that's trying to establish itself. So I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think 5G is a big game changer for all of them. Most importantly, T-Mobile, because T-Mobile doesn't have legacy fixed line customers. So it's the, f- the, the fixed wireless opportunity enables them to compete at a larger scale. At the, at the end of the day, it's going to be the ultimate solution is sort of a combination of all those things. And um, I guess that explains some of what Charter and Comcast have done as far as partnerships with Verizon and AT&T in order to provide more comprehensive solutions to their customers. And, and I think that's ultimately, at the end of the day, they're, they're a choke point for a customer. You have to have a relationship with one of these telecom companies. So maybe the breadth of their services expands or there's more of a, you know, the whole concept behind cable was a bundling of services. So Charter went the other way, unbundled, only internet, but maybe we're going to go back into a bundling world again. I think we've covered the most interesting of the 20 pages. I was just flipping through the other pages, and I think, you know, AI will be utilized all over the place, but I don't, I don't think the remaining companies, 40 companies or so, are... are uh, you know, it's interesting to speculate about. I don't know when we'll get there, but Mike and I talk about 20 minutes every morning, and of course, Mike and Jason talk all day. I think I think what we want to try to do to advance things here is to have a page 21 and a 22 with businesses that have similar characteristics to the really well-performing companies from a free cash flow point of view and from a growing free cash point of view. Well, let's just turn to page three and NVIDIA. NVIDIA has free cash flow, has a strong balance sheet, has always had free cash flow. And the problem is that with $3.7 billion of free cash flow and, and $658 billion of enterprise value, mostly equity value, the trades for 100 times free cash flow. Now, NVIDIA's free cash flow is depressed as compared to where it was a while ago, and it's probably going to be much stronger over the next 12 months. But still, 100 times free cash flow is not what we're trying to do. When NVIDIA was 100 rather than 250, it was more reasonable, but it was still 30 times free cash flow. So I think a good thing for all of us to do, and led by Mike and Jason with me pitching in is try to develop a page 21 and a page 22 with companies that may be an earlier stage of their development but have a chance to have the same characteristics. Good balance sheet, free cash flow, and a strong position where, strong competitive position, but where they're at an earlier stage and it might be possible to Get them. I mean, that kind of a company at 20 times free cash flow is a clear buy, but you know, try to populate page 21 and 22 with those kinds of companies. So don't necessarily expect it next, next week. This is hard to do, and but I think a very worthwhile thing to do from overall investment returns. So, Mike and Jason, any commentary on that way of thinking about page 21 and 22? I, I like that plan. We've we've probably got a number that we could propose to you in the next few days when we talk, and uh, maybe we can whittle it down to something for 21. Yeah. 
said, so don't expect it. Don't expect it at the week after Easter, but maybe the week after the week after Easter will populate a page 21. And with that, everyone be well and stay healthy and talk next week. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.